London hasn't had a smog in over a hundred years. Not in the classic sense of the word, anyway. While we still deal with congestion and regular fog from time to time, it used to be that London was a city so heavy with pollution that walking its streets felt like descending into the muddy depths of a thick, toxic ocean. 1800s London, during the Industrial Revolution which built the city and destroyed its future, carried itself with a suffocating romance, its denizens moving like deep-sea divers from gas lamp to gas lamp, meandering through the smothered night of caustic chemical capitalism. Modern London no longer has the smog. Poison in our lungs is less visible, all microplastics and PM2.5. We breathe our execution easier, eat our poisons with sugar and corn syrup. And yet, walking at night between the orange streetlights of the city, the ghosts of the Victorian dead still wander amongst us. Lonely as ever, awaiting rescue. I'm James Thompson. This is Subterraneans. A friend of mine, looking for a cheap place to stay in our notoriously inhospitable rental market, turned to property guardianship to get by. Becoming a property guardian means taking on a month-to-month rental contract on a property that is, in most cases, due to be demolished, but still awaiting permits or some other bureaucratic necessity. It offers cheap rent, but at the cost of potentially being forced to move out with just two weeks' notice, and the other obvious downsides of living in a near-condemned property. Leaky roofs, failing utilities, and next to no connection to the local community. He was living alone with very few possessions, and had long-term plans to leave London, so it was perfect for him at the time. His first place was a former hotel in Highgate, a grand Victorian pile that had been divided and subdivided into more and more flats since its heyday passed in the 1950s. I joked that it'd be the perfect setting for a ghost story, all empty corridors and intricately rotting wallpaper, but nothing of any note happened while he was there, unless you count a flatmate constantly stealing his cereal from the shared kitchen as the height of horror. Many do. Personally, I've always thought hotels were a bit of a funny setting for a ghost story. Don't get me wrong, I love The Shining as much as the next guy, but the nature of hotels is disconnection, temporality. The type of liminal space that everyone on Tumblr was going nuts for a few years ago. Ghosts, though, are surely more likely to thrive on connection, protectiveness, the return home, the ties that bind, and then the tragedy of helplessly watching that home crumble over the centuries. Owen, my friend's name was Owen, by the way, stayed in the hotel for about five months before being moved on. He was a little sad to go, since part of the deal involved volunteering some time in the local community, and he'd started to get a little attached to the elderly folks nearby who he'd been bringing meals to while he was there. While the volunteering was ultimately a sort of buying of indulgences by the property developers, sure, we're evicting tenants and tearing down buildings, but we're also doing all this charity in the process, or at least getting other people to do it. 
Owen still enjoyed the work on the ground. Whatever evils the London property market might be doing overhead, he was ultimately paying cheap rent in exchange for helping out a good cause. It's a deal we all make one way or another, and we all have to find a way to live with it. His next posting was in the Aberfeldy estate near Poplar. At that time, it was a former council estate which had changed hands several times due to the killing off of social housing under successive post-war governments. Poplar's proximity to the city and its former bustling docks meant that the entire site had been bombed down to rubble during the Blitz, and then rebuilt for the people in the brief hurly-burly of post-war anti-communist socialism, when British society seemed like it had a genuine chance at changing in response to the ideological weight of Soviet success in the East. Once that had faded, the Aberfeldy estate spent 50 years rotting and buckling under the laser-focused neglect of late-century capitalism, and now it was finally going to be torn down and replaced with thousands of flats that would definitively price out any old-timers from the former East End. His flat was on the top floor of Platt House, one of the older blocks. It was a drafty three-bed that he was assigned to alone. They were demolishing so many that they only had one tenant for each block, so he was completely isolated up there, his footsteps echoing through the damp corridors each night as he trudged back over the winter concrete. And a cold winter it was too. The roof had a big leak in it, and the boiler didn't work properly, so Owen spent most of his time locked in one room with a space heater on. The electricity would stutter out and die from time to time, forcing him to wrap up and take the stairs down to the utility room on the floor below, where he could reset the big fuse box. The wind would whistle through the myriad holes in the dilapidated facade, causing the entire building to thrum with strange polyphonies, like a choir of flutes at the bottom of a well, and he always felt somehow both watched and alone. The place was all cardboard and concrete, exposed stairwells which froze solid every night, and windows that rattled whenever a lorry went past on the A12. The flat was stripped bare, an empty shell with no memory but harm. One of the bedroom doors was sealed shut due to the overwhelming black mould inside, which would creep out through gaps in the hinges, necessitating a wipe down every three days lest the whole place be consumed. It clearly held a family once, there were the remnants of height markers on one of the door frames, but now it was just him gazing out across the ragged estate, bathed in the injured glow of orange street lamps and the echoing howl of the Blackwood Tunnel. Owen first heard the story of the Aberfeldy ghost while doing his volunteering work out on the estate. On an icy morning in late November, he was doing something the company referred to as bus stop patrol, which basically amounted to standing at a recently discontinued bus stop and directing people to the new one on the other side of the A12, through the underpass that people kept getting stabbed in. It wasn't exactly handing out food to the elderly, and Owen couldn't really see how it was supposed to help the community more than, you know, reactivating the bus stop. But it was what he'd been assigned when he took the contract. £600 a month is £600 a month, you know? He was minding his own business when an older woman approached him. She had a battered chore coat wrapped loosely around her, her bare legs grey-blue in the wind, and she shuffled up uncomfortably close to him on the secluded edge of the estate, 
ignoring his gesturing in the other direction. I heard you're in Platt House. Terrible what happened to that girl. She was half his height, but she held eye contact with a frightening intensity, a coiled spring ready to lunge at any moment. Owen found himself instinctively stepping back, weighing on his back foot, something deep in his bones telling him not to provoke her. She stepped closer and quickly raised her hands up towards his face, slender fingers surprisingly soft in the frost as they brushed against his cheeks. Don't go in that room, Poppet. She knows what you came to do. He was overdressed for the cold, but Owen suddenly felt exposed. She held his gaze for a long, fraught moment, and he realised he wasn't breathing, as the cold in his spine shifted into the siren warmth of lost hikers stripped into a hypothermic death spiral. Involuntarily, he closed his eyes a moment to shiver, a tremble rising from the centre of his neck and resonating through his nerve endings. And when he opened them, she was gone. Back at the flat that evening, Owen found himself pacing up and down the damp corridor, trying to understand what he'd seen. She was definitely there, he definitely felt her hands on his face, and then she just... wasn't. It was like seeing the light flicker out on an old CRT monitor, the hollow click as it disappears back to oblivion. He found himself slowing his stride every time he passed the sealed door. The frame was lined with expanding foam to keep it in place, but the black mould was getting through regardless. He hadn't thought about it much at first, except as yet another weird property management quirk, but the words of the old woman echoed through him. Don't go in that room, Poppet. She knows what you came to do. What could that mean? The door itself was one of those completely smooth, white-painted landlord specials, barely an inch of plywood and a door handle that hung slightly loose. He couldn't help but realise, slowly walking down the path in his mind, that he could force it open at any time. What's to stop you? They're going to demolish the place anyway. He reached out towards the handle, his fingers moving with the Steady temerity of someone pretending to know what they're doing. As his palm closed around it, lifted it slightly to try to turn, he felt... He felt something on the other side start to turn it too. Startled, Owen leapt back, slamming into the wall behind him, leaving a huge dent in the plaster with his elbow. Fuck! Well, they're not paying you to keep the place in good nick, I guess. Shaken from his reverie, he retreated back to his room for the night, eventually falling into restless sleep, while the space heater thrummed futilely against the piercing, whistling cold.
Let me take a second to talk about Limehouse and the Aberfeldy estate. Back in the 1800s, when London was still a major centre of imperial goods laundering, the area between London Bridge and Limehouse was known as the Pool of London, a major part of the continuous wall of docks and quays that made up the edge of the Thames. This area of East London was the blood and guts of the city, both the warm viscera that its financial life relied on to survive, and a source of disgust for its wealthier residents. The banks and trading houses might make their money on the docks, but they didn't want to see how the sausage was actually made, you know? Limehouse was a major destination for immigrants on cargo ships from all over the world. It was actually the location of London's first Chinatown in the 1880s, due to the influx of Chinese sailors on East India Company ships from the 1780s onwards. It was mostly men, many of whom settled down with local women and raised kids in the bustling East End, where crime and poverty were rampant, but you could make yourself hard to dislodge. Unfortunately, the Blitz dislodged just about everyone. The entire area was levelled by Nazi bombs, the communities scattered to the wind, beginning the process known as the Cockney Diaspora. If you could leave, you mostly did, either then or when the industry left shortly after. Not everyone was scattered, though. The same stubbornness that kept them alive in the toughest reaches of industrial London kept people glued to the area through World War II, sheltering in tube stations and picking through the rubble, and then through the decline and closure of most of the docks. The next cohort of Chinese immigrants in the 60s and 70s mostly settled in Soho and Bayswater, with the former group creating the modern Chinatown in the West End. But some diehards stayed behind in the rebuilt streets of Limehouse. The Aberfeldy estate is a little east of Limehouse's former Chinatown. But when social housing went up there in the 70s, there were more than a few applicants from the local Chinese population. These were the real holdouts, many elderly or infirm, still clinging to the sense of community that had disappeared beneath them, hoping the new wave of social programs would stand in for the places they'd lost. It couldn't be. The estate was built in an awkward triangle between two major roads and the River Lee, isolating it in a cloud of smog away from the rest of the city. Although the DLR and the Jubilee lines came in much later, for a long time, the nearest tube station was a lung-punishing 20-minute walk along the Blackwall Tunnel approach to Bromley by Bow, further reinforcing the feeling of the place as a little island of poverty, an immense filing cabinet of the city's discarded, wrapped in a bow of motorway junctions that strangled it to death. The mould was first reported by Joanne Chen in 1974, a 16-year-old living with her grandmother in Plaid House. They'd moved to the Aberfeldy estate from Limehouse Causeway, where she'd been living with her parents in a former Anderson shelter amongst the rubble of East London. If the 1970s sounds a little late for that sort of thing, you'd be absolutely right. While the rest of London was rebuilt through the 50s and 60s, whole sections of Limehouse, and the former Chinatown in particular, were still in shocking disrepair 20 years after the war ended. 
by that point less a symptom of German bombs than of British neglect. Joanne had been hopeful when they first moved in. She was a second generation immigrant, born and raised in the UK, but crushing poverty and the stubbornness of her overbearing father kept her isolated from other kids. He'd moved to London in 1927 as a 19-year-old, fleeing the brutal repression of Chiang Kai-shek after the Shanghai Massacre in April of that year, and settled among the local Chinese population, building a reputation as a severe and unpleasant man. He moved his mother to the UK after World War II, and then married another local Chinese woman who had been widowed during the Blitz in 1955. Joanne was born in 1958, and she exists on paper as little more than a birth certificate until they moved to the Aberfeldy estate. In 1972, they got a three-bedroom flat on the top floor of Plaid House, overlooking a little parade of shops. And for a year and a half, things seemed to be picking up. She started going to school. Previously, she'd been mostly stuck inside taking care of the home and made a few friends in the local community. There's a photo of her in summer of 1973, playing out on the streets of 70s London. It's currently on the website for the redevelopment of the Aberfeldy estate in a little section about the history of the site. She's a little more than a blur running across the background of the shot amongst a gaggle of other kids gleefully chasing a ball across an empty road the warm light of golden hour in late August, framing them in a clouded, unselfconscious haze, all clashing patterns and mishmash clothes. Kids from all over, believing, maybe just for a moment, that things were going to be okay. That hopeful period came to an end, though when her parents were run over and killed by a drunk driver on a cold night in October of 1973. Joanne stopped going to school abruptly. She retreated inside, lost in her grief, and trying to take care of an increasingly confused and elderly grandmother. The mould started growing in November of that year. According to her letters, it seems to have been a particularly virulent type of black fungus, which ate through the shabby prefabricated walls faster than she could clean it up, twisting horrible black spirals into the paint as it burrowed through the rooms. By March of 1974, Joanne had written three times to the management company to request someone investigate the source. She didn't receive any response. Barely ten years from its first blocks being built, Aberfeldy had already gained a reputation for neglect, with rubbish piling up in the streets as rampant state disinterest kept the area in stiltifying poverty. Nobody was coming to help her wipe down some mould. And so, even as it began to pull chunks of plaster off the walls, burrowing down into the fabric of the building through the cheap paint of her bedroom, Joanne stayed indoors eating cold tins of beans dropped off by a neighbour and cleaning obsessively, trying to restore some semblance of her old happiness, even as it was devoured by something even older. In 
Apart from that brief 18 months in Aberfeldy, neglect was all Joanne ever knew. Her grandmother died sometime in early 1975. She never reported it. Instead, she simply left everything in place and continued, stubbornly refusing to acknowledge the world that was ending around her. The mould grew and grew, rotted her home from the inside out, changed, devoured. Joanne began to hallucinate. Clean walls, clean floors. The promise of safety dangled and then snatched away. Her bedroom returned to how it was when they first arrived. A blank slate filled with promise with her in the middle happily preparing to live a life supported, protected, loved. Never mind the creeping spider-webbed finger sliding threateningly into the edges of her vision in the night. Never mind the whistling drone of the decaying flats. Never mind the sirens and the smell and the emptiness and the blackouts and the rot. It would be another year before police broke down the door to find Joanne sealed in her bedroom, her body contorted in pain, covered head to toe in bristling, technicolour mould. The morning after smashing a hole in the wall, Ohm was groggily rolling out of bed, and into the hoodie and tracksuit bottoms he kept on the floor next to his mattress. When he noticed his bedroom door was ajar. That wasn't right. The place got so cold and rattly that he had to keep everything shut to prevent his glass of water freezing next to the bed. Sure enough, it was icy in there, his breath condensing in front of him as he walked over to peer down the hallway. Down the hallway, the door was open. The sealed door. Snapped abruptly awake, Owen inched towards it, shivering. He pressed his back against the wall opposite, his fingers tracing the shape of it as he drew closer to the spot he'd crashed into the previous night. After what felt like a lifetime, he was standing across from the open door. He couldn't see inside, but sure enough, it was open, loosely leaning to in the cold morning air. Dread rising in his stomach, he reached forward to push the door aside. Light spilled across the hallway that sharp white light that comes on the morning after a snow. First the walls, then the floor, then the ceiling, bathed in the bright glow of the clean, scrubbed white immaculate. The indents where the windows used to be, perfectly smooth, perfectly clean. No furniture, just sheer, sanded perfection. It hurt his eyes to look at. When they adjusted, he staggered back a moment at what he saw. 
Owen swears to me that this part is true. In the centre of the room, in amongst that terrifying ocean of oblivion, sat a girl. Perfectly still, perfectly calm, with hair trimmed above her shoulders and a shining white smile. White linen clothes, dark black eyes, staring directly at him. An empty stare. Owen tried to speak, but nothing came out. Keeping his eyes on her, he stepped forward through the open door. Stepped forward and through. Instead of solid white carpeting, his bare foot sunk down into the floor, revealing a thick, tar-like mould concoction hiding beneath the thin layer of pristine. It souped up around his toes, grasping and, he insists, pulling him down. Owen lost his balance, tumbled forwards, sprawled towards the strange girl in the middle of the floor. As his hand stretched out, sought purchase on her shoulder, she tore, collapsing into mould spores, distorting with it the entire surface of the room. The walls resonated out for a second and slid downwards, revealing a technicolour nightmare of fungus. Owen was on his knees, coughing, his face engulfed in a thick, humid cloud of buzzing infections, crawling into his ears and nose and mouth as the room tore itself apart to devour him. Skittering wetly towards the door, his entire body covered in the mossy putrefaction that gripped him and tried to pull him in, he managed to gain a hold on solid ground. He could hardly breathe, it seeped into his eyes and his nose, but with all his strength he pulled himself out of the room, and onto his feet down the hallway, and out the door, and downstairs, out, out into the frosty morning, away from the condemned Aberfeldy estate, never to return. Plaid House was demolished in August of 2017. If you search for the Aberfeldy estate now, you instead get directed to what developers have decided to rebrand as the Aberfeldy Village. There's an immaculately maintained Wikipedia article with a suspiciously consistent set of IP addresses in the edit history, all sunshine and rainbows about the new development while carefully erasing any references to Joanne Chen or the Plaid House mould. Folk history doesn't meet the editorial standards of Wikipedia, especially with developers hovering overhead, protecting their profit margins. And yet, reports have started coming in from the new development. Building standards are so low these days anyway that it's hard to tell what's new and what's innate. The decay has mutated. It's all glossy catalogues and problems in five years now, Sold as a starter and converted to buy-to-let before the decade's out. Landlord beige and no holes in the walls. But nonetheless, tenants and owners have reported problems with damp in the new Aberfeldy village. A strange, persistent damp. Congregating in patches on the walls. Inexplicable from utility plans. Especially in the cold winters, with the heating off to save money. And, from one lonely flat on the fourth floor, 
a single word in reports repeatedly submitted to the property portal. Mold. next episode of Subterraneans, pickup artists in Covent Garden and the compound of the 13th man. I've been James Thompson. You can reach me at Subtopod on Twitter or by email through subtopod at gmail.com. If you're enjoying this series, please subscribe and rate on the Apple Podcasts app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also subscribe on Patreon where you can get access to transcripts, bonus episodes, and behind-the-scenes info for £5 a month. That's patreon.com forward slash subtopod. Special thanks to my £10 and above subscribers, Hiran, Alex, and Andrew. Forever, forever can exist. Flowering pain gives space. Thanks for listening. <laughs>